0: Last night, I tried to uh, explore a little bit Jesus' experience of God and suggested that uh, this one little passage we have at the beginning of most of the Gospels where Jesus is baptized, that this word where Jesus is named Beloved This is one of the only insights we get into what his experience of God was. That beneath all the projections of the culture around him, all the shame-based ways that people stratified themselves, all the ways in which uh, he was misnamed and uh, persecuted, and the way he continued to be misnamed, unseen, uh, misunderstood. He had this word. Beloved, this experience of God at the very in the very marrow of his bones, claiming him and naming him as beloved. And this is the experience of the Christian faith. This is the experience we seek to make available uh, on down the centuries from one heart to another, opening us to the presence of this love, not just the words. Not just the teachings, not just the rituals, but the actual experience that penetrates all the fearfulness and all the defensiveness and all the inner voices of self-hatred that goes right down into the center of our bones and says, you're free, you're loved, Uh, there's no need to be afraid. Henry Nowen, a uh, Catholic priest and, and writer who passed away uh, maybe 12, 13 years ago, he um, spent the last, he taught at Harvard, he taught at Yale, uh, but he spent the last 10 years of his life at a place called Daybreak, a little community outside of Toronto that has a developmentally disabled folks live in community there and, uh, and uh, live with other people who, who serve them, and he was a chaplain there for the last 10 years of his life. And and tells this story of one day, he's going across campus, he's a very busy guy, he's a very popular author, he spoke all over the world, but he's living in this community as the chaplain there, and one day he's walking across the campus, and uh, a developmentally disabled woman named Jennifer sees him, runs over, and says, Father, Father, um, uh, can I have a blessing? He's busy, he's on his way to a meeting, and so he just, kind of a perfunctory. Is that the right word? Who's, somebody, who's from Stanford could tell me the right way to say this? Um, reaches over and just makes the sign of the cross on his on her forehead and says, in the name of the Father and the Son. And she knocks his hand away and says, not like that. Do it right. And he's, he kind of is stunned. And she says, you know, do it in the Mass tonight. Now, in that community, every day, the way the day would end is at 5 p.m., everyone who worked there and everyone who lived there would gather for a closing worship service in the Catholic tradition. It's called a mass. And they do it for about 30 minutes at the end of the day. So now one thinks, okay, I got to do something for her tonight. I don't know what that is. But he goes on to his meeting, finishes his afternoon appointments. And at uh, five o'clock, they're gathered in their little chapel in the community there for the mass. And he sees Jennifer and he realizes, okay, I have to do this blessing. And he says to the community, before we start today, uh, Jennifer has asked for a blessing. So Jennifer, would you come up here? And he said, I'm sitting there in my head formulating what is it she wants me to do? What's the right way so that she feels like she's receiving a blessing? And as I'm trying to figure this out, she just walks right up, grabs my arms, and wraps my arms around her and puts her head on my shoulder. And he says, I'm sitting there holding her, and all of a sudden I just lean down and say into her ear, Jennifer, you are God's beloved. And with you, God is well-pleased." And she just stays there. And then when she's had enough, she releases her arms, turns around, and goes and sits down. He said, as soon as she sits down, a young college intern named Stephen raises his hand. And now it said, I said, yeah, Stephen. And he said, could I get one of those blessings?
1: <laughs>
0: and so now it says, sure. And so he said, Stephen kind of makes his way up. He says, I wrap him in my robes, and I tilt his head onto my shoulder, and I say, Stephen, you are God's beloved, and with you, God is well pleased. He said, as soon as I released him and let him go, people started standing up all across (laughs) the little chapel and making their way forward. Now, I love that story, but I want to be honest with you. If I had been sitting in the back of that chapel and everyone started standing up to move forward, I would have thought, "Ah, crap. Are we all going to do this? This thing's going to go on forever. And I would have moved down the aisle and I would have stood behind everyone else, (laughs) leaned forward, got my hug, turned around, and would have gone back. And there would have been this little cynicism inside me. And there would have been this little resistance. And I might have even mocked the whole thing deep inside. Not on the outside, but on the inside. Because no matter how many times I have preached about God's love, no matter how many songs I've sang about God loves us, uh, and no matter how many Sunday school classes I've sat in or taught, there's a part of me that says it isn't true. It isn't true. Yes, maybe God loves the good part of me, the one part of me that's trying, the part of me that goes to church, the part of me that's able to keep all the Christian rules, but certainly not all of me. I'm not really a beloved of God. I only am when I do the right things, right? Because the culture I've grown up in, uh, we have this, what a friend of mine calls the trinity of false identity, right? This is how I know who I am. I am what I do. I am how much I do and I am how well I do it. That's really where my worth comes from in this culture. I am what I do. I am how much I do and I am how well I do it. That's where my worth, my value, the truth, the center of who I am comes from. And every young person knows this. As they get a little bit older, they start getting into high school, they head towards college. What's the question everybody asks them? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And they better have the right answer. They better not say, I'm going to study English. Unless they're going to be a teacher. Right? But you know this pain. I'm going to study English. What's the second question they say to you? Are you going to be a teacher? And if you say no, then you get that look of sympathy. Like, oh boy. It's not going to go well for you going to be difficult, right? You say engineering, computer science, that's the right answer. Something that's going to make money, something that's going to give you worth and value in our culture. Doctor, lawyer, these kinds of answers. What are you going to do? And that kind of thinking moves into the Christian faith. And we believe that this is how God is as well. That God is constantly uh, filled with expectations for us. That every time we do something well, God goes, okay, you did that one okay, but next time jump a little higher. Next next time try a little more. Next time give more. That God is always disappointed in who we are. We feel that. This little inner voice of judgment, this little inner critic, this inner Pharisee, who's always measuring our life and we always end up coming up short, (coughs) right? And this tragic part of that is that this God that we're trying to please, this God who always has more expectations, this God who is disappointed, this God who feels very real, this God who we're always working to just get a little bit of love from, this God doesn't even exist. That God is not real. The real God is a God that wants to embrace all of us. The real God is when we're in this God's presence, we don't want to leave. We don't feel judged. We don't feel the disappointment. (sighs) We can breathe. We can relax. We can be ourselves. We feel freed up. We feel life and creativity, our curiosity, our compassion rising to the surface. We feel free. We feel free. This is the God that our heart knows is true. You see... The God that Jesus experienced is a God who was nothing but compassion. Nothing but compassion. What Thomas Merton says, mercy within mercy within mercy. It's a God of sorrows who knows our pain, knows our suffering, cries and weeps with us, waits and hopes for our own liberation and freedom, seeks our own healing, celebrates every pleasure we experience in this life, wants our gifts to rise to the surface, wants to lift the burdens of what we think life is about off our shoulders, hopes to bring us down into the depths. See, this culture keeps us on the surface, right? Always judged. What a friend of mine calls the three A's. We're always being measured by our achievements, our appearance, and our affluence, Right? what we're doing in the world, what we look like, what we've accumulated, the wealth we have. And yet way down in the depths, inside, in the secret chambers of our hearts, Jesus continues to whisper, you're free. Do what brings you life, right? Like any good parent. What gives a parent the greatest pleasure? Seeing our kids come alive, it can be swimming or drawing or talking with their friends. It doesn't have to add up to anything. We just love to see them alive, awake themselves. God wants the same thing for us. So what uh, we're doing on this retreat is trusting that the God that Jesus knew is real. This, this, is, this is the spiritual work, is to discern reality from illusion. And most of us, even in the religious world, are caught, uh, stuck, trying to please a God who only exists in our minds, while our hearts beg and plead for the real God to be freed, to be uh, 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 given room to move within us. So the God that Jesus knew is a God of compassion, and the truth is we also know this God. Every one of us has brushed up against and has felt this same God. As I said last night, there's no work you have to do. There's nothing you have to read. There's no new belief statement you need to uh, sign up for in order to experience this God. Every human being on the planet, it's our birthright, knows this God of compassion. In fact, that's a way of identifying where your soul is. The soul is that place in you that knows God. It doesn't believe in God. It doesn't have faith in God. It knows God. Every human being, every one of us, has encountered and knows God. This is what Desmond Tutu was trying to do with those seminary students. Remember, when you've experienced and encountered and known God's love, it's not through theology, it's not through uh, uh, education that you come to this God. Remember, it's already. Remember, is uh, the, the etymology means bring back into your body. It's in your bones. It's in your blood. It's in your body. You've encountered this God of compassion. Uh, when my sons were little, I have two two boys and I have a little uh, little girl. But when my when my before my daughter was born, my sons were little. I used to walk them to a uh, preschool. I lived on a seminary campus. I'd walk them across the campus, drop them off at a preschool. And um, every morning, you know, when you have little kids, they were uh, probably <coughs> three and five at that at that time. And when they're little, and you're you know. You have the chaos of the morning. It's like uh, being with drunk people. You know, one minute they're crying, and I hate you, and the next moment it's like,
1: Dad, I love you. You're the best. It's
0: like this emotional thing going everywhere, and you're feeding them, and they're eating like crazy, and then they don't want it, and you're trying to get the clothes on and they're kicking them off and so you have to duct tape the shoes or whatever it is and <laughs> the backpack you're putting the stuff in and so it's craziness every morning getting little kids off to school and I was the one in charge so I had to make the breakfast get the stuff in and this was part of my, my deal with my wife I do the morning routine so I got everything going we'd get outside we were always running late didn't matter how early I got them up how fast I got everything ready if I made the breakfast the night before it's always like three minutes before and it's an emergency and I would have to walk them across and drop them off. And so every morning, we'd get outside, and I'd say, OK, guys, we got to run. i get—I got to get you to school. i got to get to a meeting. Let's go. Now, Noah is wired like I am. He's a little bit uh, uh, hyperactive. And so he would say, OK, Dad. And so he'd start running alongside me with his backpack and tennis shoes on. Joseph, my second son, would say, OK, Dad. And then do this. Start walking like this. It wasn't that he didn't want to please me and stay up. It's just that he couldn't. Because one second later, it's like, Dad, look at this over here, this bush. This is cool. And he'd start wandering around. i say, Joe, I know. Come on, man. We can't look at the bush right now. We've got to go. And he'd say, OK, Dad. And he'd start this and he'd look down, and there was a bark trail. And every morning, he would go, Dad, look at this piece of bark. It looks like a boat. And it's like, put it down. There's enough bark here. We'll get one later. And then he'd like go, I'm not throwing that down. He'd put in his craziest boat bark. This is rare. And put it in his pocket. And every morning, we'd go through this routine where eventually, I'd have to just pick him up, put him under my arms, and just run with him. Okay? Well, this happened. This is our routine every morning. One day, we're having dinner. And, the f- and it was just the four of us then. And, and uh, we're sitting there. And Joseph, we're asking about his school day. And Joseph says, well, um, I started a club today. We say, you started a club? He said, yeah. Well, what's it called? He said, it's called Slow Club.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm like, Slow Club? I said, who's in your club? He said, oh, it's just me, but uh, I can be the president because it's just me. And I said, what do you do in slow club? He said, we just have two rules, no running and no hurrying." This is one of these moments where my wife kind of looks over to say, this is for you. <laughs> and so I, so, you know, he tells us, we talk about it for a little bit, have dinner do the nighttime routine. They go to sleep. Next morning, it's the same craziness. I'm trying to get their shoes on. They're kicking them off. I'm trying to get the backpacks ready, get food in their mouths. We're outside. I'm running late again. And I say, okay, guys, we got to hurry. We got to go really quick this time. I got a staff meeting this morning. We're out there. We're on the bark. I'm like, come on, Noah, let's go. Come on, Joe. And Joe's like, Dad, I'm in Slow Club. <laughs> I can't run and I can't hurry. I'm like, Joe, Joe, this one morning we came, Dad, I'm the president. <laughs> So Joe walks like this that morning, just deliberately, as slow as he possibly can go. And I'm like, Joe, man, we got to, I'm serious, we have to go. You can be in slow club once you get to school. No, Dad, it's for life. (laughs) He's walking like this. So I try to hurry him along. Eventually, I have to just pick him up from the beginning of the trail and just run him there. And every morning for the rest of the year, he would do this. He would get outside. And he would walk like this down the steps and walk very slow. And he would also, we would have seminary students over, friends over to the house. Anytime he was around anybody, he would ask them, would you like to be in my club? He had me write up his charter, no running, no hurrying, and Joseph Iaconelli, president. And then he'd say, if you sign here, you can be in my club. But then he would look at them with this kind of very serious look and say, you have to promise to never run and never hurry. (laughs) And no one could meet his eyes and make this promise. So after the whole school year was over, he was still the only one in the club. He couldn't get one kid, one seminary student, anybody to join and promise to this charter. That summer, I'm leading a camp up in Washington, Holden Village, a youth camp. I've got the family with me. And one morning, Joseph wakes up and says, Dad, would you like a temporary pass to Slow Club? (laughs) And so I say, okay, I think I can do this for one day. And so he takes out a piece of paper, and he colors this thing, and we write, you know, temporary pass, and I carry this thing around. And for that whole morning, we eat our breakfast slow, and we walk around slow like this looking at stuff, and we go out to watch the high school kids playing ultimate Frisbee, and they're playing Frisbee out there. And all of a sudden, the lunch bell rings. Now, at this camp, when the lunch bell rings, everybody runs because they never had very much hot food. And if you didn't get the hot food, you were just going to get peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the back table. So as soon as that bell rang, the game immediately stopped. The kids start running into the lunch room. And I say, Joe, hey, we got to get going or we're going to miss the food. You know, let's, let's get back there for lunch. And Joe's like, Dad, you're in slow club. Well, You can't run. So we sit there, walking like this back to the camp lunch room, while the high school kids are running, and the counselors are running, and a woman in wa- a walker is passing us. <laughs> And we're doing this. And Joseph is watching me, and he can see I'm kind of upset that we're, I'm in this crazy thing with him. And he says, Dad, Dad, look around, and you're going to notice things that other people missed. So we look around, and sure enough, there's two jackrabbits that are kind of up looking at us with their ears pointed up. And we go a little further, and we notice that there's there's lupin. Uh, flowers there. And within them, there's embedded these moths that have the same color wings. We notice these lizards sunning themselves. We pick up rocks. We get flowers. And pretty soon, we're kind of scavenging all this stuff. And we get back to the lunchroom and meet my wife and my other son. We've got all these little treasures. And we sit down. And Joseph looks at me. And he says, now, Dad, tell Mom everything you saw. And it was one of these moments when my eyes were opened. And I realized He's trying to hang on to something that I once knew. That for Joseph, the world is enchanted. It's a mysterious, beautiful, incredible place. And why would I walk past the 10,000 reminders of God's love and beauty and creativity and mystery? He's trying to hang on to that. He's trying not to, to narrow his life into life is the goals, the objectives, the end point. He's trying to hang on to the mystery. He's trying to hold something that I once knew. This is the wakefulness towards God that was in all of us and still is. Like a toddler inside of us, it still calls to us and says, Don't go to the meeting. Go hide in the redwoods. Let's go see what it's like out there, right? a part of us that wants to do all the things I mentioned last night, rest, remember, receive. So the way in which we make contact with the God that Jesus knew is not by striving. It's by simply resting, remembering, receiving, returning back to what the soul knows is true, that we come from God, that we return to God, that we are loved by God, right? This is Jesus' power, is he has this identity. So no matter what violence, uh, what anger, what misunderstandings comes towards him, they don't penetrate because he knows the ground truth. And we do too. We do too. It's in us. We know the same God. And the work is... Uh, you see, because in this culture, we're trained to no longer see the presence of God. That's what Joseph was fighting again. We're trained to not perceive the beauty around us. And the work is to return to what we know is true, to remember, to come home. Um, there's an anthropologist, Angelus Arian, who studied all these different indigenous cultures in Asia and in Africa. And she noticed This common set of questions among the healers in these communities. When someone was disheartened, alienated from themselves, disconnected, uh, um, there was a series of questions often uh, the healers in those communities would ask a person. And the questions were When was the last time you sang? When was the last time you danced? When was the last time you sat with friends and told stories? When was the last time you sat and listened to silence? All of those diagnostic questions were seeking to bring people back home to themselves, to get them out of the trained patterns of thinking, all the burdens and anxiety and work that we seek to do to protect ourselves, to slow them down so they could feel the presence of God, rising like sap in the trees, right? And so the work is to stop, to listen, to feel, to remember what we know is true. And so what I want to do this morning is move, because last night I've given a bunch of words, and this morning a more, uh, more words. But I want to move beyond uh, these words that I'm speaking and let you discern what's right, what's true, uh, what of what I'm speaking um, resonates and what doesn't. What I want to do this morning is lead you in a practice where not only can we talk about remembering, but you get the opportunity to remember Mm. yourself. We're going to try the tutu method of remembering a moment when we felt uh, loved. And so uh, what I want to do here uh, in a minute what have we been, we've been sitting 45 minutes. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break here in a minute, and then uh, we're going to come back and we're going to try an exper an experiment uh, of seeing in our own history have we had a moment where we were named as beloved, a moment where we encountered uh, God's love, and I'm not you don't have to search for this, you don't have to manipulate anything, you don't have to work anything up, you just let me guide the <laughs> whole thing. It's all you have to do is be willing to try, uh, be willing to play along. Okay, we'll do this in just a minute. So let me end with this last message. We'll take a break. This last uh, um, uh, image. We'll take a little break, and then I want to do a practice to see if we can bring this home. So when I lived in that house where uh, where um, my kids went to preschool, next door was a woman named Priscilla who was the manager of the bookstore, and Priscilla. Had a, a son in high school or daughter just started college when she was diagnosed with lung cancer, and the painfulness about that was, you know, she had never smoked, nobody in her house smoked. It was, it's very rare to get lung cancer without it being connected to, to smoking in, in this culture, but she did. And not only did what did she contract it at 52 years old, it was terminal and it was in, it was highly invasive, and she went, did all the um, the recommendations that, that the uh, medical community gave to her, took chemo, had surgery, then tried alternative medicines. And within a year, she realized, I'm not going to make it. And she decided to make peace with it. And I remember uh, in the mornings, Priscilla, uh, in those last months, would put a lawn chair in the front of her house, little postage stamp front yard. And every morning, as Noah and Joseph and I got ready to go to school, Priscilla would be there as the sun was coming up. This was in the fall. And she would look at the elm trees that were on our street, Bellina Street, and watch the kids walking down her street to school and people going to catch the bus into San Francisco. And she would have her coffee, and she would just kind of smile, just taking in the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, if I was in the backyard, we had a little four-foot cedar fence. I could look over the fence, and while I was playing with the kids in the back, there would be Priscilla, same chair, uh, now pointed west. And she sometimes had a glass of champagne a little piece of chocolate, a little baby pool, which she soaked her feet in, and she'd be watching the day come to a close. And this was her routine, day after day. I would see her out there. And one day, uh, I hopped the fence, brought my own chair, sat next to her, and said, Priscilla, how are you? I see you out here, and I, 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 I feel so much for you and your family. And How are you making it through this time? And she just waited a long, long silence. And then she said, you want to know what's strange, Mark? A part of me is grateful for the cancer. She goes, "Uh, I've slowed down since I got sick. I listen in my bed in the morning to my daughter getting ready for school and my son talking to my husband. When I hear my husband's voice, it used to annoy me. I love the sound of his voice now. And I see the little lines on his face and the crazy little breakfast routines he does. And I just enjoy them. I used to tell him, I want all these uh, dandelions, she had across her backyard, cut and killed and mowed. I told him, don't touch them. I want to see every one of them. She goes, a part of me is grateful. It helped me to slow down. It helped me to realize all I've been given. And she says, you know what, Mark? I almost missed it. I've been so busy so focused on career, so focused on getting my kids uh, uh, out the door and launched, that I almost missed my life. And it's the cancer that's allowed me to slow down and take in and receive. What Priscilla came to at the end of her days, she came home to what she knew as a child. She came home that life is a gift and that God is singing to us in all the colors in all the people around us, in all the tragedies and gifts and celebrations of our life, God is singing. And she heard it at the end of her life. We don't have to wait till we have cancer to slow down. We don't have to wait till we're sick to take a day off. We don't have to be a child to be able to walk slowly and to feel the life we've been given. We can do that now. We can do that now. So what I want us to do here is take a little break, get, use the restroom, get a drink of water, whatever, and then we're going to actually try something that gives us permission to move into that space. Okay? So Don't sneak out, particularly those of you who are getting very freaked out right now.
1: <laughs> if
0: some of you are feeling like this is going to be fun, well, you can stay or leave. But the people who are freaked out and don't want to do this, you have to stay. That's the Holy Spirit <laughs> stirring something up. Okay, so let's come back in about 10 minutes. Everybody, we're gonna we're gonna gather up here. So I'm I'm going to explain as soon as we get gathered up. I'm gonna explain the exercise we're gonna do, and then we'll uh, give it a try. So this exercise um, is about remembering and recalling a moment in your life that was sacred. Some moment in your life that was sacred. And I, and I want to use that word, sacred, and I'm also, in the prayer, going to use um, uh, a sacred presence was there. And the reason I want to use that word is if I say a moment with God, we tend to have certain expectations what that looks like, certain habits and ideas of who God is that restrict our awareness. So what we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to invite you to remember a moment that was sacred. As if I, could, if I could give you a photo album that had a photograph of every moment of your life and you happened to be flipping through them, what experiences would come to you as moments that were sacred to you? A moment of joy, or deep connection, or um, a moment of heightened presence, of love, or uh, aliveness. And it may be that the moment that comes to you in this exercise was actually uh, quite ordinary. Some, some just like simple uh, whisper of presence. Or or it may be that the moment was was quite life-changing that came to you. But allow whatever the moment is that that the Holy Spirit wants to bring you uh, as you're going through this prayer. Whatever experience wants your attention, just stay with that. And then, as a way of helping you recall and recover what that moment was like, I'm going to invite you, using your imagination, to go back in time and sit in that experience again. And I'll do that by giving you prompts like what did you see and what did you hear and what did you feel and what was that sacred presence like. And as best as you can, as if I could put you in a time-traveling machine, I want you to go back and sit in that experience once again. Remember what it felt like. Remember what that sacred presence was like. And then at some point in the prayer, I'll invite you just to allow that same presence to be here once more, and just for you just to rest in that. And that'll be maybe five, six, seven minutes of silence. And then I'll gently bring you out of the, uh, the prayer. And then once we come out of that prayer, I'm going to invite everybody just to go off on their own, uh, anywhere you want on the, on the campus for about 20 minutes. And there's crayons. And um, I want you to, if you feel drawn to it, to see if you might have an image or a color or some way of expressing what that presence was like through colors. Now, again, if some of you were saying, this is exactly why I didn't want to (laughs) come.
1: And you're looking at your
0: spouse and giving probably her that look. Well, then you have to do the colors. That's a sign. The resistance is a sign. Holy Spirit's trying to break through. If you're going, hooray, colors. Well, you can do it or not do it. It doesn't matter. But for those of you resisting, I'm sorry. This is your practice. Okay? So I'll send you off to go do that. And maybe some of you are, are, are like to write and you want to take a journal out and just kind of write about that experience. Whatever way helps you to process it. And then we'll come back after that and we'll talk about what, what uh, showed up. Okay? So that, that's, our, that's our morning. And that will bring us to lunchtime. So before we start this prayer, if you want to move somewhere else in the room, you know, the traditional uh, uh, praying postures in, in the Christian tradition are laying down. Um, pa- uh, pacing back and forth in monastic communities you kind of walk back and forth some of us need to move our bodies in order to, to move inside um, sitting or, or kneeling although kneeling could, it could be a very long time so be prepared for that but if you want to move somewhere else in the room just to, someplace where you can be on your own or sit against the wall or whatever feel free to do that right now before we, before we start And it's just we're just going to try something here. These are experiments with God. So just as we. Uh begin here, I invite you, just, just first of all, you might want to stretch your arms and open your body. Take a couple of big breaths. And you might want to sit, if you're, if you're sitting with your, with your spine up so your lungs can get air and your circulation system can do its work. And then as you're ready, I just invite you to um, close your eyes as a way of moving inward. And just in your own way, just within yourself, offer this time to God. Just as a way of helping us to kind of center down and and, uh, let go of the distractions within us and around us, I invite you just to imagine that you're at the top of a staircase that's the very top of your body, right at the ceiling of your own head. And just for a moment here, imagine that you're walking down a spiral staircase just within your own body. Moving from the top of your brow down into your heart. That secret chamber where God waits patiently for us to return. And then as you move deep inside within yourself, just let yourself rest for a moment here in the quiet, Mm. in the presence of other people longing in the same direction. Let yourself simply rest and breathe in the midst of these trees, these ancient trees that have been standing here, witnessing our lives, holding the silence, yearning for God to bloom in each of us. as you rest here, just become aware of various moments in your life where you sense the sacred was present. Moments of joy or wonder, of deep connection. moments that were simple or unforgettable. And as various moments come to you, just allow one to emerge as the focus for the rest of this prayer. And I invite you to see if you might return to that experience by using your imagination and recalling what you saw. What did you see in that experience? What were the colors? What did you hear in that moment? What were the sounds? What did you feel in your body in that experience? What emotions came through you? And what was that sacred presence like in that moment? What was the sacred like? the next few moments, just allow that same sacred presence to come over you once again. And for the next few moments, just rest in that gentle presence. and as we rest here in this sacred presence see if the spirit might give you some symbol that represents the way the sacred has been present to you some image or color person or landscape some object that symbolizes what the sacred was like in this moment. And as we begin to emerge from the prayer, is there some invitation from the Spirit for how you might carry the grace of this prayer out into your daily life? Some invitation for how you might extend the grace of this prayer out into your daily living? And then, as you're ready, just allow gratitude to rise up within you for whatever has occurred within your prayer. And then gently bring your attention back to this room, this time. this gathering of friends. So I want to invite us just to kind of stay in this place, um, just within ourselves. And in a moment here, I want to invite you, if you feel drawn to it, to uh, go find some place on this campus to sort of sit with what showed up. And one of the ways you may do that is just you might want to go somewhere and just sit quietly. Just kind of soak in this silence or this awareness. There are colors in paper. If you want to try to capture um, the image or the feel of what that encounter with the sacred was like. It's not art, it's prayer. So whatever shows up, it might be part of the praying. Or you may want to go journal and try to get some words on what God was like in this experience. But I want to give everybody 30 minutes of solitude. (coughs) So the only rule is you're just on your own in silence and solitude. So everyone has permission to be on their own. If you want to stay in this room, you're welcome to or go to your room or go someplace. Um, But as a way of protecting everyone's uh, prayer and the work they're doing with God, we won't interact with each other. And then we'll come back here at 11 o'clock. So you have 30 minutes just to go find your own space. And we'll come back here at 11.